Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Such a beautiful song and a great reminder for where we are right now. That word fret, we've been thinking about it and talking about it. And that's the word I want to talk about today is fret. It's not a word that we use very often. I don't, I don't often say, don't fret. We have different ways of saying that. Don't sweat it. Stop being anxious. Stop worrying. But fret's really a good word because it somewhat encapsulates all those various ideas into one. And let's face it, in the world we have today, we have a lot to fret about. Uh, Obviously, the first would be health issues. I mean, with the worldwide pandemic and COVID, uh, our health becomes a central concern for a lot of people. And You know, COVID was one of those diseases that seems indiscriminate in terms of age or healthiness or any of that stuff. And so it creates this sense of dread, this sense of fretting. But you know, it's not just COVID. I mean, it seems like ever so often we hear a new story of something that creates cancer. I read recently that that, uh, Roundup creates cancer. And I'm like, Roundup? Here we go, man, because all of us have been covered up in Roundup fighting weeds and stuff. I mean, what in the world? And so, you know, health is always kind of in the background, especially when you're younger, but as you grow older, it becomes more and more an object of fret. The economy, there's a lot of people fretting about economy. I, I look at it and I go, what, what in the world's up with the supply lines? I mean, you can't get stuff anymore. If you want to buy a truck right now, you can't really get one. Uh, I know Ford and Chevrolet, you can't get one of those because they, they don't have any. Um, the supply chain has been disrupted by this idea that the, the Toyota did it years ago. They created a, an economic device called Just-In-Time. And the idea was that it's very expensive to store products. And so what they would do is they would synchronize the manufacturing so that the products and parts arrived just in time. And so they would build all these trucks, and then at the last minute, just in time, the chips would arrive from China. They'd plug the chip in. The truck's good to go. The only problem is COVID has disrupted international supply lines, and they can't get the chips. And so now you've got Ford factories with these trucks sitting all out on the parking lot waiting for their chip. And we're looking at that going... What does that do overall to the economy? Don't build a house right now. I heard housing costs, material costs are up 400%. And then some Russian hackers have hacked into a pipeline along the south. And, you know, next thing you know, there's a fist fight at a, at a gas station up in New Jersey somewhere. It seems like there's always a fist fight at a gas station in New Jersey. Um, you know, what's going on with that? Now hackers have hacked into the meat supply. A fifth of America's meat supply is under attack and being held hostage to the hackers. And, you know, and so what's created in our economy is this thing called scarcity. And scarcity is a scary thing. Not only can you not get what you want. The other day we went to Sherwin-Williams to pick up some latex enamel paint. They didn't have any. I'm like, seriously, you're Sherwin-Williams. It's like paint is all you have. No, we don't have any of that. Can't get it. And and the problem with scarcity is it creates inflation. And and some of us are old enough to remember the days of of a stagnant economy with an inflation situation called stagflation during the days of Jimmy Carter. And, you know, all of a sudden interest rates are at 21%. I bought a motorcycle in 1980 at 21% interest. $1,440 $1,440 motorcycle, Kawasaki 440 LTD for 10 years at $79, you know, because interest rates were so high. And, and, and that becomes a fear because most of us are just getting by. 
When you start to think about the economy, it starts to become troubling and, and it, it can create some, some fret. I mean, we fret about the way everyone is trying to indoctrinate people with radical thinking. Isn't that happening in our society? Demi Lovato came out saying that she's no longer binary, but that she's multiple genders. She's both male and female, and she would prefer to be called a they. I'm like, how do you even talk to her? You know, what pronouns do you use? And there's this whole idea that gender is a choice and that and, and all of the implications that go along with that. And you're like, what in the world's going on? Because we know that gender is biological and every cell of a female is different from every cell of a male. And it's not something that you just randomly choose. It's something that is assigned at birth called biology. And yet all of these preconceived ideas that we've always held and cherished to seem up in the air and, and open for debate. And I say, what's going on in our world? And I, here's what I really believe. I really believe at the core of it, it's an effort to reconstruct society without Jesus. Because the fundamental core values of Christianity have to do with personal responsibility, with the fallen nature of man, with redemption, atonement, and accountability. And if you, you take Jesus out of that, you take God out of that equation, then you don't have any concept of the fallen nature of man. So you have a misunderstanding of the nature of man and you think it's some systemic problem or some societal or situational problem. You don't realize it's an individual problem. And without the, the resurrection and the atonement of the cross, there's nothing to do with your sin, which we don't believe in. And so what do I do with, with the guilt and the shame and all this junk that I'm having to live with without Jesus? And the answer is it must must be someone else's fault. And so rather than me dealing with it personally and taking personal responsibility and being accountable for my own stuff, I want to lay that on someone else or some other institution and say it's their responsibility. They're the ones that have done it to me. And so you see everyone looking for a scapegoat because someone else clearly has to be blamed. And lost is the idea of the fallenness of man. Lost is the concept of redemption, the absolute necessity of personal responsibility and accountability. I'm not to blame. The system keeps me repressed. Don't, ch don't change me, change society. And you see this in the gender issues. You see it in critical race theory. You see it in the current move to defund the police. You see it in the abdication of personal responsibility at the roots of this infatuation with socialism. And, and what they're basically saying is the institution have failed us and so what we have to do is recreate new institutions and new models and I get that there's no such thing as a perfect society there's no such thing and we should constantly be tweaking it and fixing it and trying to make it acceptable to where everyone has equal opportunity but we still maintain a system of merit and it still maintains a meritocracy uh, it's not equal outcomes but it's equal opportunity and that should be the vision but that's not the vision anymore because the problem is society and the institutions of society which have been uh, created to uh, benefit the few instead of the whole. There's a new way of getting at this. I came across this, a new way to blame the system and pin it on patriarchy. Women are becoming witches. Did y'all know this? I didn't even know this was a thing. Susanna Lipscomb, who's an Oxford-trained historian, asked the question, why are women becoming witches? Brie Luna has 472,000 Instagram followers, is a magical influencer who posts appeal to the increasing number of people, especially young women, who self-identify as witches and who, according, 
and who account for, now get this, the 6.8 million Instagram posts with the hashtag, hashtag witches of Instagram. And the article goes on to say that much of this is driven by the appeal of empowering women. Much of the identification comes from seeing the history of the witch hunts as a story of female oppression. Modern-day witch Gabrielle Herzig told Sabat Magazine that witchcraft is feminism. It's inherently political. It's always been about the outside, about the woman who doesn't do what the church or patriarchy wants. A witch is someone who stands against patriarchy and everything that is currently wrong with our society and any society throughout the ages. See, I didn't know that. I thought a witch was somebody that cast spells and sat over a cauldron. I didn't know that it was feminism at the core. By that definition, she writes, we could all be witches, which may indeed be the point. Luna says, every woman is a witch. (laughs) There was a time if you said that, it would make some women mad. That sounds like a patriarchal saying, every woman is a witch. Look, I get it. I want women to be empowered. I think if a woman does the same job as a man, she ought to make the same money. I don't think there ought to be opportunities that are limited to women based upon their, their gender. I get all of that. But I don't think you've got to become a witch to get at that. And, you know, I've got this little granddaughter, Garnet, and I want her to have every opportunity in the world, and I want her to be able to, to be feminine and to be successful and to be whatever God calls her to be. But I don't want her to be a witch. But the whole idea is the concept of patriarchy everywhere and that we're, there's some sort of attack and, and that we've got to reconstruct society based on that. And guys, listen to me. All that does is upset us. Have I got you upset yet? Did I, did I upset anybody yet? You're like, I'm starting to get upset. You keep talking. I'm about to get real upset. There's plenty to fret over. We've got so much to fret over. But here's the question. What does the Bible say about fret? What does it say about fretting? Because some of you are pretty good fretters. I need to coin a word, a fretter. We've got some fretters among us. <laughs> and I am one. What does the Bible say? Let's go to Psalm 37. This is my favorite psalm and one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. And we're not in a series today, so I get to preach whatever, whatever the Lord leads me to, and I always come back around to this psalm. I think this is the third or fourth time I've spoken on this psalm. I love it. And here's what it says, Psalm 37, 1. And I can't imagine a more timely word for our generation. Here it is. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. And He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. In a world that is so filled with with hostility and rage and conflict and uncertainty, how do we respond? Well, first thing is, don't give yourself permission to fret. 
It says, do not fret because of evildoers. And fret is such a rich word. It it encompasses a lot of ideas that we have and a lot of other words that we use. But at the root of it, the word really means to get heated up. That's what what the root of this old Hebrew word is. It's to put a pot on the stove and heat it up. In other words, I get all stirred up. I get on a boil. And that manifests itself in different ways through people's lives. Sometimes fretting can mean anxiety. You know, your heart starts to flutter. You get palpitations, get a little lightheaded. I know some people who struggle with anxiety throughout their life, and we're given to anxiety. And some of you, let me just say this, if you've got clinical anxiety, you need to talk to somebody, and there's medication that can help you get on top of it until you can sort of find your way uh, through what is causing this anxiety in your life. You see, there's a fire under your pot somewhere. And, and until you figure out what fire is, is heating up your pot, you may need some help with medication, and so don't be afraid of taking that. At the same time, get at what it is that's causing it. Because anxiety, the Bible says, anxiety in the heart of man weighs it down. It becomes a fatiguing thing. You can't even get out of bed. I've, I've known people who deal with anxiety, and oftentimes the corners of their eyes just start to go black, and they feel as if they're going to die. And let me say this. Nobody has ever died from anxiety, okay? One of the things that it'll convince you of is that you're having a heart attack and you're going to die. You're not going to die. That's a part of anxiety. And the more anxious you become, the more anxious you become. So it becomes a vicious cycle. That's fretting. Sometimes fretting is worry means worry. And you're like, wait, what's the difference between anxiety and worry? You know, I don't really know. It seems to me, and and this is as best as I can define it, it seems that anxiety is something that happens in my heart and worry is something that happens in my head. Does that that feel right to y'all? That anxiety is something that where my heart kind of takes over, but worry is something that happens in my head. And let me just say this. Some of you guys are really good at worrying. In fact, if there was an Olympics there was an Olympic event called worry, you would be a gold medalist. You can worry when things are going good because you begin to worry that things are going to turn and start going bad. Irma Bombeck did this one time. She did this bit. I loved Irma Bombeck. She said, let me just say, I'm a worrier and I'm good at it. But she talked about how when things started going too well, she would begin to worry that they were going to change. Here's, here's the little piece she wrote. I found a parking place in front of the supermarket got a shopping cart with four wheels that all went in the same direction at the same time and found a sale on something edible that I needed. I took a bath and the phone didn't ring. On Wednesday, I ran for a bus and made it. The dentist said I had no cavities. My husband asked what kind of day I had and didn't leave the room when I started to answer. But Thursday, I was a basket case, anticipating what was in store for me, but it didn't happen. On Friday, I was sobbing into a dish towel when my husband tried to comfort me. I can't help it. I said, things were never meant to go this well. I'm worried. Now, now, he said, patting my shoulder, things can't go rotten all the time. How would we appreciate the bad times if we don't have a good day once in a while? She said, I know. I know I'm going to get it, though. Do you know that yesterday I went to the boys' room and their beds were made? He frowned. And that we got a note from the IRS apologizing for being late with our refund? This isn't like us, I whined. The bad times I can handle. It's the good times that drive me crazy. When is the other shoe going to drop? 
We heard a car turn into the garage and make the sickening scrape of a fender when it meets an immovable wall, and we looked at each other and smiled. Things are looking up. (laughs) It's easy to worry. But you know, the Bible doesn't give you permission to do it. I'm often reminded of Ruth Graham's words. Worry, worship and worry cannot live in the same heart. They are mutually exclusive. Let's go back to Philippians 4, 6. You remember that one? Be anxious for nothing. Uh, now that word that's translated anxious is merimnao, and it's a word that usually is translated worry. Here, I'll give you the study of it. The reason I give you the study of it, I believe words matter, especially words that are inspired by God. And these words, this is the way the translators wrestle with this word. Uh, It's usually translated worried, worry, worrying. It can be translated concern, care, worry about, and sometimes be anxious. In Philippians 4, verse 6, the New American Standard translates it, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I love the way the New Living translates it. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Because we're not given the freedom to worry. Here's a third way that Fretting can manifest itself in anger. Fretting can also mean anger. In fact, that's the primary sense of the old Hebrew word here. It's almost always translated anger. Again, here's the word study so that you can see what what it looks like, how they deal with it. Um, It means angry, kindled, there's fret. And it's only used as fret, I think, four times in the Old Testament, three times in Psalm 37, and then one time in Proverbs 24. But the idea behind it is that that the pot starts to boil and I begin to get angry. And I get it. There are times for appropriate anger. Jesus got angry, right? He went into the temple. They're making it hard for people to come to God. They're cheating people. So he turns over the money tables and the zeal of the house of the Lord has consumed him. I get that. And the Bible says, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So there's an appropriate time for anger, but it's very, very rare. And one of the problems that I see in the church today is that we are becoming a part of the problem because we're allowing ourselves to fret in the form of anger. And so when we see what's going on in the world around us, we become very angry, but we call it righteous anger. And we have this idea that there's this righteous anger, you know, and you just don't see that in the New Testament. When you read all the way through the New Testament, you did not see this righteous anger coming from the church towards societal ills. And they lived in a very wicked, non-believing society. Um, and, and there, there's not the concept that my anger makes me more righteous. In fact, just the opposite. James said it this way, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You see that? You don't see anger listed among the fruits of the Spirit. He doesn't say love, joy, peace, patience, anger. But a lot of people in the church have given themselves permission to be angry all the time, especially at what they see happening in their society. I'll tell you where you do find anger listed. It's among the fruits of the flesh. Galatians 5.19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Outbursts of anger. Outbursts of anger is right there with sorcery. You got it? And we're called 
repeatedly in the New Testament to put anger away from us, to put it aside. Colossians 3.8, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. I've got to tell you, every time I've ever been angry in my life and I've looked back on my reactions to things, I have not been proud of my anger. It has not made the situation better. Not a single time. Not in, not in a conversation with my wife. Not in a conversation with my kids. Not in a conversation with anybody in business. Not in a conversation with a law official. Not in a conversation with anybody. With a church member, anybody. It's never, ever made it better. So why do we think it's appropriate? Let's go back to Psalm 37. We looked at verse 1. Skip down to verse 8 and look what he says. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. He repeats himself. It leads only to evil doing. You become like the thing you hate. And so don't give yourself permission to fret. It's not okay to be anxious, worried, or angry. No matter what happens in your world. Instead, take the longer view. This is the second thing. He says, be not envious toward wrongdoers. And that word envious has at its core the idea of jealousy. And, and so maybe that explains some of the anger. Maybe he's getting away with something I wanted. I don't know. But here's the main point. None of it's going to last. Look at what he says in verse 2. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. And this is almost repeated verbatim in Proverbs 24, verse 19 and 20. Now watch this. He says, do not fret because of the evildoers or be envious of the wicked. That's exactly what he said in Psalm 37, 1. Now look at verse 20 of, of Proverbs 24. For there will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. He says almost the exact same thing. And I love this. You know why? Here's why I love this. Who wrote Psalm 37? Do you know? David. David wrote Psalm 37. Who wrote Proverbs 24? Solomon, who was David's son. Isn't it interesting that Solomon repeats verbatim something that his daddy had written down? You say, well, that's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I get it, that's right. But it was also internalized in Solomon's thinking. Why? Because this seems to be something that was important to David that he repeated all the time. He, he repeated this lesson when he's sitting down at the table. He's talking, you know, he's, he's talking about don't fret because of evildoers. Solomon probably get all stirred up. Some kid at school is getting his way and he's getting ahead and he's beating somebody up. And he's like, don't fret because of evildoers. They wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green earth. He repeated it. It's one of those things dads do, right? It's like, dad, you're repeating yourself. And I always want to say, well, maybe I'm doing that because you're not getting it. Only I can't say that in anger, right? <laughs> and David had so believed in this and it was so core to his values that it was easily transferred to his son Solomon. Here's what I know. All the wicked people and crazy ideas that we fret about won't last. Take a longer view. I can't tell you in my years on this planet how many times the world was going to come to an end and how many times the economy was going to... I'm old enough to remember Jimmy Carter. I'm old enough to remember 21% interest and 14% interest on mortgages. I remember the word stagflation. I get it. I'm old enough to be one of those guys that in elementary school, we had nuclear bomb drills 
Anybody in here have nuclear bomb drills in elementary school? Okay, you just tell me how old you are. Remember what would happen? For the fire drill, the bell would ring like three times. We'd all go line up in the hall and we'd all walk out because nobody wanted to burn up in the school. But then we had nuclear bomb drills because the Russians were about to drop the bomb on us. So they would ring the bell, I don't remember how many times, and all of us little first graders would crawl under our desks as if that's going to help, you know? <laughs> you know, what good is a bomb drill? You're sitting under your desk, and here comes a, a million megaton thermonuclear weapon. Oh, but my desk is going to keep me from getting burned up. You know, and as a little kid, you're first grade, seven years old, six years old, you're just getting scared to death that you're going to die at any minute from a bomb. I just gave you another thing to worry about. Why'd they do that? You, you can't do anything about it anyway. Why are we having drills? And I remember as a little boy being so anxious about Russia dropping the bomb on us. It was a real thing. And I remember one evening, uh, Dad had Billy Graham on the television. We didn't go to church, but every so often, Billy Graham had come on. And I'm watching it, and Billy Graham makes the statement, and this really helped me as a little boy. He said, our world is not going to end from a nuclear bomb. He said, I've read the Bible, and our world is going to end when Jesus comes back and not a second sooner. And all of a sudden, I just realized, I don't have to worry about that. God's got this crazy world in His hands, and He's in control. Take the long view. I mean, yeah, they scare us right now, but they wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. And here's the most important thing. Remember who you serve. He says, don't fret. Now look, if you're good at fretting, that's easier said than done. I might as well tell the ocean to quit coming to shore, right? But he doesn't just do that. He doesn't just say, hey, don't worry. Nobody needs to hear don't worry because that just makes us worry. I didn't know, well, am I supposed to be worried? You know, what am I worried about? But He fills us with what we do. It's not just here's what you stop doing, but here's what you do. And there are four words here that are so important. And I want to walk, kind of dance across them quickly. The first is trust. He says, trust in the Lord and do good. You know, at the end of the day, worry is a lack of trust. Worry is assuming responsibility. I say this all the time. Worry is assuming responsibility God never intended for you to have. Worry is being in the car and you're afraid that God doesn't know how to drive. And so you reach over and want to grab the wheel. That's, that's worry. He says, trust in the Lord. Trust Him and do good. Look, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Man, I don't know that we know how to rest. I, what's the opposite of fret? Well, I think it's rest. And, and I think this is something we've forgotten. We don't know how to rest. Uh, Gordon Dahl said, we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. So true. But that's really not the kind of rest he's talking about. This rest isn't talking about time off. It's talking about releasing control. That I rest in the Lord. It's, it's the idea that I be still, that I cease striving. It's that beautiful Proverbs 46.10, be still and know that I am God. And at the end of the day, I just go, God, I don't understand all this stuff. I don't know how to fix it but I do know that you're bigger than this and I'm just going to trust you to do it. And I'm going to stop taking responsibility for what the Father alone can control. 
And when that happens, I stop fretting and I rest. Then he uses this word dwell. Trust and then dwell. He says dwell, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. And dwelling was such a powerful idea for the Jew, particularly dwelling in the land because the promise was tied to the land. You know, he told Abraham, you're going to get the land. You get a name, you get children, you get land. That was the covenant of Abraham. That was the covenantial promise that he gave to them. And so the land became very important. What he says is, I want you to dwell in that land, that land of my promise. That's what he's talking about. Dwell in that land of my promise. And look at the agrarian metaphor here. He says, and cultivate faithfulness. I want you to, I want you to plow the field with faithfulness. I want you to plant faithfulness. I want you to f- to fertilize faithfulness and, and water faithfulness. I want you to harvest faithfulness. I want, I want every part of you to say, my job is not to control the world, but it's to be faithful. And, and I'm going to dwell in that. And I'm going to dwell in this promised place that God has given me. And when you understand the power of that dwelling and how it relates to who I am and who He is in a spiritual sense, you begin to really get a hold of it. Proverbs 90, I mean Psalm 91.1, He who dwells, and there's that beautiful word, dwells in the shelter of the Most High, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And Jesus told us, He said, abide in me. John 15, 7. If you abide in me, and that's that same word only in the Greek, uh, meno, it means to remain or abide. Abide in me and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If I know that my Father loves me and that I dwell in the shelter of the Almighty. And if I ask whatever I wish and it's done for me, what do I have to be upset about? What do I have to fret about? And then this beautiful word, delight. Delight yourself in the Lord. This is my favorite verse in the Bible. I'll often put it on things. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of His heart. And there's a beautiful double entendre to this word delight because it means intimacy or softness. It's really kind of a feminine word. It means softness, and the idea is intimacy, which is satisfaction. You know that I'm, I'm satisfied in my beloved. And what is it Piper says? God is most glorified in us when, when I'm most satisfied in Him. And so there's that idea of delighting in God and being satisfied in God. But there's also this idea that when I, my heart is attuned to my beloved, then her heart affects my heart. You know what I'm saying? Having lived and delighted in Amy for all of these years that we've been together, uh, that has changed my heart. There are things that I now love only because she loved them. And there are things that I do now, not because I loved doing them, but because she loved doing them. And so that affects my heart. And there's a, there's a powerful image here that when God becomes our beloved and we become delighted in Him, that our heart begins to take on the loves of the heart of our beloved. And so my heart starts to change. And it's a beautiful idea that when my heart starts to change, I begin to desire the things that my father, my beloved, desires. And when I desire what my beloved desires, what does He do? He gives me all I desire. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. When my heart desires what God desires, He gives me all I desire. And then finally, commit. Commit. Trust, dwell, delight, commit. Commit your way to the Lord. It's not so much committing your life. That happens at salvation, and that's powerful and important, obviously. 
But he, he doesn't say commit your life here. He says commit your way. This is more about committing your plans. Proverbs 16, 3, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. And it isn't the idea that, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think up what I want to do and then I'm going to say to God, bless my mess, you know. Here's my plan, God. Bless it for me. That's not what he's talking about. But it's the concept of my plans are committed to God and it starts with God being included in the planning. And when God is included in the planning, then the plan becomes His plan, and that plan succeeds. And it's not so much I, I plan what I want to do with my life, and then I say, hey, God, come along for the ride and make everything work out. It's that, God, what are you doing, and how can I join you in what, I'm do- in what you're doing so that I can see your glory in my life? And when that happens, commit your ways to the Lord. Your plans will be established, and you don't have to fret. Man, here's the problem with fretting. When you fret, you forget. Don't you? You become consumed with the thing that you're worried or anxious or angry about, and you forget who you are, you forget who your father is, and you forget what your beloved wants for your life. And when that happens, you lose track of everything else. And we're doing that right now. Because when we fret, we become just like them. Because you become like the thing you hate. And listen, there's too much anger in the church today. There's too much animosity. There's too much worry. There's too much fear. It's time for us to put that at the feet of Jesus. What are you fretting about? Some of you are fretting about your grandkids. Some of you are fretting about your children. There's no trouble like kid trouble. Man, I I get it. Some of you are fretting about your health or the health of your family. Some of you are fretting about your finances. Some of you are fretting about the direction this country's taking. You don't have permission to fret. So stop it. Trust, dwell, delight, Commit. Can you do that? Wouldn't it be powerful if right now we just made that as our commitment to the Father this morning? If you're fretting right now, could we do that together? Let's just pray and let's make it a commitment to the Father. I don't think anything changes unless we make a commitment. Here's our commitment. Father, I'm not going to fret. Can you say that? Heavenly Father, I choose today not to fret. I will not become worried, anxious, or angry about these things that are fearful to me. Instead, I will trust You. I will dwell in this land that You've given me and I will cultivate faithfulness right where I am. Whatever You've given me, I'll do with my whole heart. And Father, I will be delighted in You that Your heart becomes my heart. And I will commit my way before you that I walk according to your precepts and your plan. That you remove this fear from me. You remove this fret from me. And you give us peace. Father, I pray for peace right now upon your church. I pray for it in the lives of families that are in conflict. 
I pray for it in the lives of individuals, whether they're here in this room or listening online or on the radio, it doesn't matter. But Father, that you would bring peace and speak peace into our hearts, that we would model the nature of Jesus, which is peace. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.